Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We live in a time where our speech has unlimited potential reach given the communications advancements of the 21st century. Of course, that has led to a national and international debate on free speech. Our guest today, Dennis Barron, literally wrote the book on free speech. His book, You Can't Always Say What You Want, is now available to all. Board of Education versus PICO, Justice Brennan found that the Constitution protects not just the right to speak and to write, but the right to receive information and ideas. The First Amendment plays the central role in affording the public access to discussion, debate, and the dissemination of information and ideas. Across the country, we're seeing lawmakers propose restrictions on these kinds of shows. And at the same time, they're being targeted more and more often by far-right groups, these events. Just this year, at least 124 drag events faced anti-LGBTQ protests or significant threats, according to GLAAD, an advocacy group. A Florida school district has pulled 176 books from its libraries to comply with the new state education reform law championed by Governor Ron DeSantis. The latest to be pulled for review, a book about baseball legend Roberto Clemente. A passage in Roberto Clemente, Pride of the Pittsburgh Pirates, references the racism he faced in the U.S. Just hours after Musk took over, new data shows there's been a drastic rise in hate speech on the social media site. Hi, I'm Dennis Barron, and I'm here to say, scratch a free speech absolutist, and you'll find someone who wants to protect their own speech and silence everyone who disagrees with them. And sorry, I'm not sorry. Not one little bit. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of the podcast. Before we dive into your book, you can't always say what you want. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I am a professor of English and linguistics emeritus, which just means that I'm actually retired, but I have been writing about language and its connection with various subjects for my whole career. I've written about attempts to reform the English language most of them completely doomed to failure. I've written about gender. I've written about, most recently, language and the law. And I've written about language and technology as well. You mentioned the law. 
And I just want to dive right in here with the First Amendment. So in the United States, the First Amendment to the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That seems pretty straightforward, but it's not quite that simple, is it? It never is. And there's a lot of different things in that First Amendment that are protected. You've got religion, you've got speech, you've got the press, whatever that means. And it probably means newspapers, printed books, magazines, and today the media of all kinds, including the internet. You've got the right to assemble peaceably. Notice that peaceably is part of that. In connection with petitioning the government, complaining, basically, saying, I don't like this. you got to change it. I want something else. Let me start off by saying I'm not going to deal with the religion part at all. That's a whole other subject. We can deal with that when it involves speaking. Well, let's unpack that. Let's talk about that. Okay. So, for example, you've got a baker in Colorado who says he does not want to make cakes for same-sex weddings because he does not believe that such weddings are legitimate. His deeply held belief, his religious belief, is that these things are sinful, and if he makes a cake for a couple getting married in a same-sex ceremony, somehow that's going to violate his religious belief. Now, this is in opposition to the state of Colorado's human rights laws, anti-discrimination laws, which say you cannot discriminate against someone on the basis of, and there's a whole list of protected categories, gender, age, disability, race, ethnicity, as well as sexual preference, sexual orientation, things like that. And basically, public access laws in much of the country require that if you're going to open a business open to the public, you can't pick and choose your customers. So the cake baker claims that if he writes congratulations on a wedding cake for a same-sex couple, he will be seen as supporting their union, their marriage, and he feels that's a violation of his protection against compelled speech. So what the First Amendment also does, not only does it prevent the government from censoring your speech, it prevents the government from compelling you to say things that violate a deeply held belief. The question then is, whose words are they on that cake? Are they the baker's words? You go to the wedding, you see the cake, it says congratulations. Do you immediately think, aha, the baker loves these people. The baker is blessing their union. Now, it's the client who ordered the cake. The Supreme Court didn't actually decide that case. They sent it back on a technicality. We thought we were going to get a big decision today with broad implications, right? The central question here was, can business owners actually discriminate? Can they refuse services to customers on the basis of religion? Did we get that decision? No. In fact, it's important to know what the court did not do here. It did not give a green light to business owners 
to discriminate on the basis of religion against members of the gay community or other protected individuals. Instead, what the court did was it sort of dug deep into the record in this case, this particular case involving um, uh, Mr. Phillips, the baker, and found that when the case went before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission on the claim, discrimination claim brought against him, that one or two members of the commission made statements that Justice Kennedy and the other members of the majority felt showed evidence of hostility. They didn't resolve the issue of whether this constitutes compelled speech. The baker claimed he's an artist. He makes very special cakes. And you cannot force an artist to create something against their will. And that issue was not resolved. It's going to come up again because there is another case, again coming out of Colorado, where a web designer who would like to design wedding websites has not done so yet claims she is afraid to do so because she's not going to design a wedding website for, again, a same-sex couple, because that violates her religious belief. We'll get to see whether the courts take up, I mean, they are going to take up this issue. It's an interesting issue. It's a scary issue. Because if the court says a merchant, someone who sells a particular service to the public, can refuse a client on the basis of their sexual orientation, why can't they refuse on the basis of their race or their gender or their ethnicity or I just don't like the look of them? It's a troubling kind of issue. Is the First Amendment basically going to be used to self-destruct? Is the religion half of the First Amendment going to trump the speech half of the First Amendment? This is something that the framers never foresaw. And the other thing that they never foresaw is access to the Internet. And in particular, the development of social media and how that created a whole new avenue for speech and that people could speak and others around the world could listen and respond without, you know, the barriers or the filters that existed before. So I guess the question is, tell us how technology has changed free speech. Okay, so this is the fascinating subject, and it is fraught with all kinds of issues. Basically, what you've got here with the development of the internet and digital technology, the prevalence of mobile phones and laptops and iPads and similar kinds of devices, is that anybody who's got access to the internet... Well, you need a Wi-Fi signal, and you get that at your public library for free. You don't have to have your own internet provider. Anybody is all of a sudden a writer. We are all writing, communicating, and as soon as writing technology, look at the history of writing technology since the beginning of writing. As soon as writing became a useful communication tool, we have seen efforts to limit who can write, what they can write, who can read it, who gets access. There's sort of the social controls come into play, whether it's a government setting laws saying only certain people can put on a play, 
in, say, 17th century England, right? You have to have a license. Shakespeare has to have a license to put on a play. Or it's a religious organization saying what books can the faithful read and what books can the faithful have to stay away from because that exposes them to dangerous ideas. So we get all kinds of controls on access to reading and writing that come with the spread of reading and writing. A small Michigan town is locked in a war over words. The battle is over these five books with LGBTQ themes. These books and lifestyle choices are destructive and wrong. Last month, a group called the Jamestown Conservatives led a successful drive to essentially defund the library. They want those books removed from the shelves. I feel like we've kind of stepped back in time talking about book banning. Library Board President Larry Walton opposes moving or removing the books, calling it censorship. It's heartbreaking to be associated with this situation. In the 19th century, around 1880, England enacts a law which says all children have to go to school. Universal public education. Seems like a thing that's a universal good, right? Reading and writing and arithmetic. The U.S. does it state by state. England did it nationally just the way they're organized until the early 20th century when you finally get all the states on board saying public education is required. Children have to go to school. And all of a sudden, you have this explosion of readers who want to read stuff. And all of a sudden, you have a bunch of lawmakers and public watchdogs saying, wait, there's bad stuff to read as well as good. We have to make sure that they don't read the bad stuff. We have to protect them. And so you get all kinds of censorship moves coming into play. You've got people saying education is great, but you don't want people to know too much because then they will be discontent with their station in life. They'll want something better. And we're seeing this we're seeing this now play out. Oh, absolutely. This is this happened in the late 19th century. It's happening again today. Do you feel like there's enough of an uproar that this is happening right now because I know that there's a lot to worry about right now in the world, but this feels like a really big issue that our Democratic Party at the very least should be I feel like in more of an uproar about banning books. It feels so big, and yet the response to me hasn't been big enough. Oh yeah, I think I agree with that. You're getting entire states. It's not just the occasional or even a local school district saying, oh, we need to cleanse the classroom library of this stuff. You've got entire states saying, Get these books out of the library. No classroom can buy or display a book until it has been approved by some yet-to-be-named state committee, which must approve every single title before you can place it in a classroom or place it in a public library. Librarians in this country have willingly gone to jail or risked going to jail to protect their patrons' right to read whatever they want. And yet you've got these forces saying, we need to close the libraries. The libraries, they're bad. They're sapping the moral fiber of society. This is a whole thing that we have not seen since there was a wave of it in the 1930s. There's a wave of it in the 1880s. And it's back. It keeps coming back. I want to get back to social media because although the history is so very important where we are right now and how detrimental it is to a functioning democracy is what really scares me. And I feel like as long as social media has been a thing, 
Some users have complained about social media companies regulating speech on their platforms, saying that it violates free speech. What is the role of these platforms in regulating speech? And should it be more regulated? Okay, so here's the thing. We toss around a phrase like freedom of speech, but really it's a complicated kind of issue and we are often oversimplifying it when we say, oh, it's a violation of my First Amendment rights if Twitter says I can't say this on Twitter. And that's not exactly the case because the First Amendment just says that the government cannot censor your speech or force you to say something. Can you first just walk us through what this law was actually designed to do and the court's argument for, for ultimately blocking it? Sure. Well, it was passed with the support of Governor Greg Abbott and the Republican legislature. They say the law is needed to prevent social media companies from stifling conservative voices under the law. The big social media companies, this is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and others that have over 50 million subscribers, would be restricted from taking down any material based on its viewpoint. The companies immediately filed a lawsuit. They say it would force them to disseminate all kinds of bad things, ISIS propaganda, neo-Nazi screeds, and hateful or dangerous content. And they also say the government can't do this, that Texas could no more dictate the content of Twitter than it could tell a newspaper what to publish. And there are exceptions to what the government can and cannot do. The First Amendment protects you from government interference with your speech, but it is still illegal to threaten somebody. It is still illegal to say something obscene. It is still illegal to incite violence. It's illegal to lie under oath. There are exceptions. It's framed as an absolute. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. But in fact, Congress may, and the government, by extension, state, local government, may make some laws abridging certain kinds of speech. Political speech is generally strongly protected by the law, but you cannot layer your campaign slogans from a loudspeaker on top of a van in the middle of the night in a residential area. Then there's private control of speech. So speech is both a legal and a social phenomenon. And every time you have a social group, there are explicit and sometimes implicit rules of behavior, and some of these involve what you can say. So a private company like Twitter, it's an organization, Facebook, Instagram, all have terms of service. They have rules of community standards that tell you what you can and cannot say online. And they include legal things like you can't violate copyright. They say you can't engage in hate speech. You can't threaten somebody. You can't single somebody out for some kind of pylon. You can't encourage trolling. These are the social rules that an organization is allowed to make in order for participants to use their platform. The question is, do they enforce them fairly? Probably not. And that's another issue that partly involves technology. When you're dealing with Facebook and Twitter in particular, I don't know what the figures are for Instagram, but they're pretty similar. You've got millions and millions of posts every day all around the world in multiple languages, and no human being is able to vet each of those posts before it goes live. Even after it goes live, even in retrospect, 
There's just too many there for human eyes to assess and make judgments about, is this violating our rules? Is this okay? Is this not okay? And so they develop algorithms. And the algorithms are either they reject too many posts or they accept too many posts. They don't even do that very well. You get all sorts of complaints saying, I complained about all this harassment that people were piling on because I posted something. And they said, no, this is fine. This does not violate our terms of service. Twitter has not revised its standards since Elon Musk bought the company. So these are dated from about a year ago. And it basically says, both of them, Twitter and Facebook, basically say, we have these rules, but sometimes we will decide that a particular post is newsworthy, and so we'll allow it to be on our platform, even if it's violating our rules. They fudge. They have this thing which says, if it's newsworthy, which if you want to be cynical like me, it means they're getting a lot of clicks, and clicks mean dollars. Earlier, you testified about a 2019 tweet. Um, that was about President Trump. And I think it was from uh, Ms. Teagan. What was the tweet about? Would you like me to give the direct quote? Yeah. Um, please excuse my language. This is a direct quote. But Chrissy Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a the ass bitch. Okay. Free speech. And what happened after Ms. Teigen posted her tweet? What did the White House do? What did the Trump White House do? From my understanding, the White House reached out to ask that this tweet be removed. We're in the game to make money. We may be in the game to connect people together, but we're in the game to profit from that connection. And whatever maximizes the bottom line is going to impact whether we decide it's okay to post or it's not okay to post. And so often you get the sort of ordinary people who are punished for posting things that the celebrity, the big name, can say with impunity. The day that Elon Musk took possession of Twitter, hate speech and racial slurs on the platform just surged, and their biggest advertisers have pulled out. He let people who had used the platform to basically endanger the public, you know, people who tried to overthrow the government, who had spread hate, let all of these people back onto the platform who had been banned from the platform. Is that good that he allowed them back? Is it free speech? Should he have not allowed them back? It's all a very gray area for me. Totally bizarre. If you want to encourage bad behavior, do what he did. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't think he really has a plan. I think he is just impulsive and does what he feels like any given moment. And, you know, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like, I look at certain people and I say, you know what? There's societal narrative that's going around that has put this person in the role of the villain. I tend to believe that not everyone is one thing or the other. But with people like Elon Musk, who have all of this money and all of this power and who are seemingly very smart, it's hard to not think that he really is the villain. Like that he really isn't sitting behind his computer going, oh, I love all this hate speech. Because it just feels like he should be smarter. By opening the floodgates to unfettered free speech, Elon Musk has allowed hate to spread far and fast on Twitter. Elon Musk, when he took over Twitter, sent up the bat signal to every person who has felt unable to spread 
racism, misogyny, uh, homophobia, but also disinformation actors. I don't even know if you know how much he's a fan of hate speech as much as he's a fan of chaos. Yeah, I think that's it. But you look at guys like Ted Cruz, like he's a smart guy, right? You would think, what, Harvard Law or... Yeah, president of the debate team, like all of the stuff. And yet he can't come forward and say, you know what, this whole Second Amendment thing, we gotta, we really got to take a dark, deep look at our souls and see what's going on here and make some changes. Totally out of self-interest, he's playing to the base, playing to the voters rather than legislating from some principled stand that has the good of society in mind. The good of society is not always the popular choice in a particular jurisdiction either. You've got a whole bunch of politicians who you think should be smart enough not to take these positions, and yet you look where their funding comes from, you look where their votes are coming from, and they're just playing to that. It's sad. It's troublesome. It's, it makes you want to run screaming. Screaming. And we've seen this attack from the right on the LGBTQ community, and they're going so far as they are criminalizing gender-affirming care for young people. And I want to ask you, isn't how we exist in the world, how we present ourselves, isn't that the most basic facet of free speech? How can this be regulated? Self-presentation is part of free speech. I mean, there are always constraints, right? You can only wear the clothes that you can buy unless you make your own clothes. So there are those sorts of kind of general things. But these guys are, I mean, their new shtick now is to ban drag shows. Yeah. And what comes next? What comes after that? Does that mean that they're going to ban Shakespeare? Or like, where does it end? Are they going to ban Hamilton? They're going to ban Shakespeare because they don't want to have to read it. <laughs> Nobody will be able to find it, so it's fine. But if a school said, okay, we're not going to require English majors to read Shakespeare, they would be up in arms and to distract everybody from the corruption that they're engaging in, the obscene profits that they make from taking the positions that they take. It's got nothing to do with the actual position itself. It's just money and power and trying to disguise that. Getting people to vote against their self-interest, basically, is what they're doing. Getting people to vote for them and increase their risk of getting shot in school. Right. And school where in Florida, the government is severely restricting free speech of teachers. Right. But guns are fine. Oh, yeah. Guns are fine. Guns are fine. You just can't teach this lesson. Can't teach this lesson. You know, you're indoctrinating the nation. The root of indoctrination is doctrine. And that's the same root as doctor and has all kinds of implications for education. Now DeSantis is threatening to pull AP classes from Florida high schools, not just the African-American studies AP, but all AP. What could possibly be wrong with AP calculus that goes against whatever his political framework is or AP chemistry? Each year, tens of thousands of students in Florida rely on AP courses to get ahead and advance their education. And some say if they went away, it would put them at a disadvantage. On Monday, the fallout continued between the College Board and Governor Ron DeSantis. Look, I'm so sick 
of people not doing what's right because they're worried that people are going to call them names. At a news conference in Naples, the governor doubled down on his opposition to a proposed advanced placement African-American studies course. The college board was the one that in a black studies course put queer theory in, not us. They did that. While speaking with reporters, he floated the idea of getting rid of advanced placement courses and the SAT test from Florida high schools. Are they going to limit science speech and like evolution? Like where does this end and how dangerous is it? It was only 10 years ago that the creation scientists were telling teachers in all sorts of Bible Belt states that they could not teach evolution, they could not teach the Big Bang Theory, the origins of the universe, they couldn't teach about dinosaurs. So now we've moved on. Now you can't teach about drag queens. Now you can't teach about slavery. Now you can't teach about any divisive concept. You can't teach anything that's going to make somebody uncomfortable, as if education wasn't something that makes people uncomfortable. It shakes you up. It presents you with worldviews that challenge your own. You mentioned money and politics before, and I want to talk about political speech and in particular the Citizens United decision where citizens are allowed to contribute only a limited amount of money to a candidate, which in effect their speech is then limited. And then corporations are through, you know, soft money able to donate unlimited amounts of money. Tell me your thoughts on that. Doesn't it mean that corporations effectively have greater free speech rights in the United States than citizens do? If you look at who's funding election campaigns, yeah, that certainly is the case. It's a terrible decision. It is based on the idea that corporate bodies can act in ways that are similar to individual bodies, so that a group can function in ways that an individual can function. And one of them is to ensure the continuity of the group. So a corporation is established so that it can persist even though the individual members change over time. People join or leave the corporation, they die, new members age into it and become part of it. That sort of analogy with how individuals can act. But it's a legal fiction, that the idea that a corporation has some kind of personal rights. For example, the Supreme Court has ruled, even though they have said that corporate money like individual election donations constitute a form of political speech, they say, the court has said that corporations do not have the right to personal privacy that individuals have. And it's a mixed thing. John Roberts in a, a decision against AT&T, which claimed it did not have to divulge certain kinds of corporate records because they violated the privacy of the corporation. The Supreme Court says, no, you don't have personal privacy like an individual would. If you were a person, you could not be compelled to disclose these private bits of information. But since you are a business, you don't have that kind of personal privacy. And Roberts added in his opinion was, I hope that AT&T does not take this personally. 
You mentioned the Supreme Court and the term started today with the campaign finance case that sort of picks up where Citizens United left off. You've called Citizens United devastating to the public interest, so I wonder if you could weigh in on this latest case. Well, the latest case uh, would go even further than Citizens United. I mean, essentially, it would say anything goes. There are no rules in terms of how to finance campaigns. Um, there aren't a lot of functioning democracies around the world that work this way. Listen, we have mentioned, and I'm making the list right now, we have mentioned all of these different forms of what is threatening to freedom of speech. We've mentioned censorship, money in politics, the Internet. What do you think is the biggest threat to speech today and what can we do about it? The biggest threat to speech is people who are trying to shut other people up. I said at the beginning, scratch a free speech absolutist and you've got somebody who is trying to protect their own speech and silence everybody else. Why we have to silence the opposition is curious. It suggests that we don't have enough faith in our own beliefs to allow competing beliefs in the so-called marketplace of ideas. Should there be censorship? In a way, that's a distracting question, because there is always some kind of censorship. There are always constraints. Sometimes we impose them on ourselves. There are all kinds of things that you as an individual do not want to say in public, whereas there are all kinds of other things that you will willingly say in public that other people would not say. This is normal. This is, what, this is how communication happens. This is how language works. We have individual likes and dislikes. We have group rules that we obey or violate as long as we're willing to face the consequences of saying words that the group disfavors, that the group punishes. You always have free speech in the sense that as long as you're willing to face the consequences, you can say whatever you want. But most of us have filters so that we read the room, we read the audience, we try to tailor what we say to get the audience to react the way we'd like them to react. But your audience is always free to say you're wrong to attack you, to criticize you, to copy what you say, to agree, they're free to agree with you. And I guess the one thing that I, as a writer, fear the most is when the audience just ignores my words. You, as a broadcaster, too, you lose market share all of a sudden. Nobody's listening to me. What am I doing wrong? So we want to have an impact with our words. We try to tailor our words to get that impact. We're not always very good at it. We make mistakes. There is no perfect language. You're never going to get it right every time. It's not every day in every way. My writing is getting better and better. Just look at the history of writers. You see somebody's got to write something that's a great success, and their next thing is a total flop. It's not an upward progression. It's a series of mistakes and repolishing and figuring out what works and what worked last time won't work next time necessarily. It's so complex. It's a mistake to think we can simplify it and say, okay, yeah, there's free speech. You can say what you want, but, you know, sometimes you can't. But let's look at the individual situations. Why can't you say this? What's going on here? Why is this against the law? Why is this against the terms of service? Why, if I say something, do my friends suddenly look at me like, what happened to you? We get it wrong maybe more often than we get it right. I don't know. It's so much to think about, and I really appreciate this conversation. 
Finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that everybody is a writer who has access to a keyboard or a mobile phone or a microphone. Everybody is creating text more than ever before. It used to be that most people didn't write for an audience beyond, let's say, a shopping list or a letter, a personal letter. But now it's just massive. And yeah, I'm not surprised that there are pushbacks to this, that there are all sorts of people saying not everybody should be allowed on that keyboard. Not everybody should be allowed to text. Not everybody should be allowed this social media presence. The pushback is normal. My hope is that there are enough people just push on through and ignore the pushback or take advantage of the feedback that makes their work better rather than ignoring the danger signs. But it's got to be a good thing that more and more people are saying more and more things. Dennis, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Alyssa. We give thanks for the freedoms they defend. The freedom to think what we want and say what we think. To worship according to our own beliefs. To choose our leaders and, yes, criticize them without punishment. People around the world are fighting and even dying for their chance at these freedoms. We stand with them in that struggle, and we give thanks for being free. We live in a time of constant speech. It's everywhere. It is all around us. You can't walk down the street, look at your phone, open your refrigerator, or do anything else in this world without encountering speech. And we need to live in a world of responsibility. Nobody in government should be taking away your right to read whatever book you want, to study whatever subject you want, to learn and spread any theory, no matter how critical. But lately, too many of us are mistaking accountability for repression. You have freedom of speech, and so do the people to whom you are speaking. Words have consequences. Speech has consequences. For many, it's time to think before you speak. It's not that hard. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>